0: The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? The way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But
1: now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com slash
0: West Wing. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply.
1: So it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Number one. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering
0: what it was going to be, but it was number one. Right? The best you can be. Yeah. And right now, our listeners can try the number one rated ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing.
1: That's number one rated ZipRecruiter at ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing.
0: You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Sherway.
1: And I'm Joshua Molina.
0: Full disclosure. In this episode, we're talking about episode 15 from season five. It's called Full Disclosure.
1: And full disclosure, it was written by Lawrence O'Donnell Jr. It was directed by Leslie Linka Glatter, and it aired on 22504.
0: So you put the tone in there too. That's why you're a professional actor. (laughs) That's right. I just said the words.
1: (laughs) And coming up a little bit later in the podcast, we'll talk once again to Lawrence O'Donnell.
0: From Warner Brothers, here's the synopsis. The Bartlett administration reels from press leaks that former Vice President Hoynes is preparing a tell-all book that'll embarrass the President and Leo as Hoynes plans to become a candidate for President of the United States. The news flash first stuns CJ live on the air as she jousts with acerbic pundit Taylor Reed. Josh welcomes the mayor of Washington, D.C. to the White House to discuss school vouchers and also encounters a political firestorm when intern Ryan proposes closing a military base in a district belonging to a powerful congressman. Toby parlays with trade union bosses who reach an impasse over import safeguards for brassieres.
1: And Will, though briefly seen, makes no impact. I
0: don't think that's true. I think really? in the end, in the final resolution for this episode, we will discover that Will is actually behind the answer. Will is the one who figures it out. He saves the day.
1: Oh, so you're saying he had some great off-screen stuff. No, no,
0: on-screen <laughs> even. On-screen even. It just happens very quickly.
1: Okay, full disclosure. I don't remember it but
0: <laughs> Let's start before the beginning of the episode with the previously on. Well, do let's. Because this is an important one, I think. There's a lot of portent in this previously on. It's an important scene. Uh, there's a, there was a scene that didn't seem that important at first. CJ says,
2: There's a lot you don't know about me.
0: When she was talking to mm. Toby about Ben. Extra layer of meaning once we watched this episode. Yeah, we didn't, didn't even know. At that time, it was a little throwaway joke. And now it turns out there is a lot you don't know about CJ. That's right. We will later find out that the thing that you don't know about CJ, jumping all the way ahead, it's revealed at the end of the episode that CJ and Hoynes, 10 years ago, had a one night stand. And we don't find that out.
1: sure? As I remember, it was one year ago, they had a 10 night stand, but I didn't watch that closely. (laughs) That's right.
0: Partial disclosure. That's not right.
1: (laughs) You see the disclosure is half full.
0: (laughs) Sorry. That'll be the end of that. (laughs) Um, But uh, CJ... And the vice president had this affair. He was married at the time. And she knew. And and she knew it. We find this out at the end of the episode. But if you watch the episode knowing that, it really colors the entire performance from Alice and Janney, which is unbelievable.
1: I agree. And of course, watching the show, possibly for the first time, I'm not even sure I had ever seen it before. Even though I acted in this episode and read it and knew what happened, I, of course, didn't remember all these many years later. Mm. And I kept writing down that there were odd things about her. She seemed off her game <laughs> in this episode. And CJ, not not she's no, no, not AJ. CJ, CJ seemed yeah. rattled. And I kept thinking, why well, she's got no poker face and she's not keeping her composure and why she's so rattled by all this. And the scene with Leo. I like that she's being hard on him, but there's a sort of energy there that seemed odd to me. And I kept writing down these little notes. And finally, at the end, I, I understood the layered, nuanced performance that mm-hmm. AJ was giving.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one moment in particular that I wanted to mention, which is uh, the scene in Leo's office. And she's trying to make sure that they have all their facts straight. And so she's coming at him saying, I need to talk to the president. Toby comes in, She CJ even leaves for 20 seconds. And then she comes back in the room as if those 20 seconds haven't elapsed and just continues her thought. Right. Saying, because when everyone in the briefing room has that Hoynes article, but the way that she delivers this torrent is a little manic. A little because little when bit.
2: everyone in the briefing room has that Hoynes article, I'm going to be getting bombarded about what Hoynes says you and the president said. And I've got to be sure.
0: Yes. You're... It's like the energy is a little bit beyond her control. And mm-hmm. I love the end of it because she says,
2: I don't want to have to go back out there a second time saying, oh, yeah, Hoynes was right about this bit and that bit that you guys forgot to tell me. I understand. we got to get our story straight on this today. So
0: and it's the last little so thing that she does tries to center herself yeah like she's driving this car and speeding it and she can't quite stop it in time and like you know one wheel goes over the edge of the cliff a little (laughs) bit i love how vehement she is and yeah the amount of control the actor has to have to show just that the character is just a little bit out of control is really impressive Well said. And Leo can tell that there's something wrong, but then Toby covers for her throughout the whole episode from when CJ begins on Taylor Reed's show, when she first learns about this stuff and beyond, it seems like Toby kind of knows what's up. Yes. And then he covers for her with Leo, but only kind of sort of, you can also tell that Leo isn't really buying it. No. When he asks her, he says, says, is she okay? And he says, well, she got blindsided. He says, that got to her? And he said, yeah, it did. But then Leo has a look like, he's like, that doesn't sound right. Hmm, That doesn't add up. Yeah.
1: Speaking of not adding up, CJ makes a mathematical error in the cold open when she's on Taylor Reed. Did you notice that?
0: When she's talking about the billion,
1: right?
2: It will raise $3.4 billion a year. That's $16 billion over five years. And that would be enough.
1: To when in $2. fact, 3.4 times 5 <laughs> is 17. How does that happen?
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is on live TV.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, that's right. Uh, First of all, why on earth did she go on Taylor Reed again? (laughs) What this episode starts? She's what? She's back on that show after that experience that she had. Yeah, that's odd.
0: I did kind of feel like maybe she was enjoying it a little bit, though.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, ultimately she had a some sort of endorphin rush by beating him down the first time, and she wanted to uh, do it again. So she seems, she seems perfectly happy to be there. But she commits. I think there should be a word for a, a mathematical. A solicism is is a small grammatical error, and I feel like there should be a word. I wanted to create a neo, neologism for making a small math error, and I was thinking it could be she made a mistake. <laughs> It's small, but she made one. Uh, oh, that was a long way to go for a small payoff.
0: No, I'll, I'll take it for a small Yeah. Still, let's, let's go back to the previously on, because um, one of the other significant parts of that are um, scenes from season four, episode 21, Life on Mars. I think it's worth re-watching that episode, or at least the end of the episode, to see this full exchange that, that gets highlighted there.
1: Yes. Of course, I went back and rewatched that as well.
0: I didn't watch the whole episode; I just watched that final scene. Did you watch? Uh, the whole of thing? course, no. I just
1: watched that final scene too. Oh. Well, I wonder. I, I remember. I remembered having watched it. I remembered having been. I liked that scene very much, particularly because it showed us the flaws and the questionable character elements of our heroes, particularly Leo, That's who right. I was about to say essentially, but no, explicitly suggests that Hoynes cover up the felonious leaking of classified information.
2: Are you in a position to deny it? No. She's made a seven-figure book deal. She's not going to have a lot of credibility.
1: On the rewatch, President Bartlett has some more plausible deniability. He does suggest that maybe that he can weather the storm the way that President Bartlett himself weathered the MS crisis. But Leo flat out just suggests that they cover up, that they cover up illegal
0: activity. It's funny, you know, I remember... When we discussed that episode, you brought that up a, a, as a, a comment, and I didn't think that that was going to be a seed that was going to come to fruit later, but here here it really does. Although I think not in that way, I think a lot of the, um, the sort of more dire aspects of life on Mars get swept aside. You know, this whole thing that you're alluding to, the leaking of uh, information to Helen Baldwin, the really serious part is kind of more or less forgotten. They're really, I think they're talking just about the affair. And then I think here, that's really all they're concerned about. They've like completely forgotten about the leak part.
1: Yeah, which to me is a little bit of a missing element in this episode, because to me, the super high stakes nature of what happened with Hoynes is that he, in fact, committed a felony. There was a suggestion of a cover up. He decided to resign. And now we're left not even really knowing what happened. I guess they did cover up the (laughs) felony or it never came out. Well, I guess I can, maybe you could argue that it never came out, it never came out. Nobody covered it up, nobody asked, uh, you know. But uh, I suspect that knowledge of felony and not reporting it is probably some sort of legal no-no, no? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that would be a landmine that would probably, if they decided to step on, would take over the entire season, probably, of, of the show. And uh, and instead, focusing on just the sex scandal part of it, the affair, you know, that Hoynes cheated on his wife with this woman over, you know, had all these phone calls with her. That ended up being the thing that... that was the part of it that lived on.
1: Well, riddle me this. Mm. Let me see if I can blow up this episode that I actually really liked. I really like too. With one comment. Mm. They're curating a list of Hoynes' biggest f- during his time as the uh, vice president. Uh, and how about starting the list with, you committed multiple felonies and we know it. So right. I don't think you should publish this book because we'll tell the Justice Department about the felonies.
0: I mean, that is a, uh, that's a good point. Maybe it's on the list and they just, <laughs> we just, it just didn't get highlighted. It's in there somewhere behind the, uh, embarrassing the heads of state. It's funny. It didn't really even occur to
1: me till we're just getting there now in this discussion that it undercuts almost the whole raison d'etre of this episode, which is that Points has something. I mean, we, we they're trying to parse and trying to recall exactly what they said and how they said it, because there are some questions here there were some things that could cast them in a very bad light. CJ doesn't know she wasn't there, so she's trying to find out how much of this is true that he's saying. There are certain things that Leo claims are counterfactual. I didn't call the woman a cheap whore. I mean, he said she was a cheap person. He doesn't recall exactly what she said, but it's like the elephant that's not in
0: the room. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. There's one part that I like when CJ's in the Oval Office, grilling Leo and the, and the president. And she says,
2: Leo, did you say the woman was a cheap whore? And did you suggest she had other customers? No, I said she was a cheap person because she sold her story. What kind of person does something like that? But the, one of the
0: things that gets left off is he really did say the word customers. Yeah. It's great how some of the bits of truth are in there. Yeah. Well, this was one of the nice things, I think, from rewatching Life on Mars. What Leo says to the vice president is, You're a giant,
2: John. You're a U.S. senator, the vice president of the United States and presumptive nominee of your party. You cannot be taken down by this cheap person and her customers huddled around Macy's window waiting for someone to turn themselves inside out. It's cause for divorce, not resignation.
0: See, this is why I also think he's not talking about the leak. He's just saying it's cause for divorce. That's really what Leo is focusing on.
1: Well, but Leo's gone through a couple different phases in this scene. By that point, he's moved off of his... Can you just deny it? Right. I think prior to that, the word felony is said out loud. Hoynes says, I committed a felony. And Leo's immediate response is, are you in a position to deny it? And that couplet includes very damning information about both characters. Yeah. Hoynes is admitting he committed a felony and Leo is saying, maybe we can cover it up and you can stay in office.
0: But you're right. That is not in the New York Times Sunday Magazine article, as far as we can tell, nobody's saying, oh, you know, the vice president isn't volunteering. Oh, and let's let's all return to the time when I committed a felony.
1: Right. So help me understand. Hoynes' rehabilitation process, as he envisions it, is to give this interview, expand further on it in a book, and make President Bartlett and Leo look bad for having suggested that he could lie his way out of the sex scandal and remain in office. And what he's saying is, despite that bad, immoral advice, I decided to do the right thing and step down.
0: Yes. The person he's really going to be running against if and when he runs is Bob Russell. Right. And now Bob Russell is part of team Bartlett. So so by association if he can say everybody, you know, I stepped down, I did the right thing after I acknowledged that I did the wrong thing. I acknowledged I did the wrong thing and these guys wanted me to keep doing the wrong thing. But I whatever, at the moment when I decided I had a conscience, which is when he got discovered. Right. That's when it usually kicks in. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Just after getting caught. But he said, I did the right thing, and I resigned, and these guys are a bunch of liars. Or at least, you know, yeah, he's going to make them look bad. And I think that that ultimately does play to his benefit, because the selection for the presidential nominee is a zero-sum game. So if you can can make everyone else look worse, then it does make you look better.
1: Makes sense. How weird, and we've talked about this again and again with the timing of our podcast and real events Mm. and the events of the West Wing. That on the heels of this Woodward book coming out. Yeah. With all these, uh, you know, controversial revelations, we're now talking about this episode. I think it's a, it's, as we record this, it's a day after all the Woodward book revelations. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. It's
1: crazy that thing. the way things seem to sync up with our podcast and the show.
0: Full disclosure, Josh, I did steal some papers off of your desk. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And one of the things that struck me was the difference between C.J. and Sarah Huckabee Sanders in their even-the-stressed, concerned C.J. responds very differently from how Sarah Sanders, C.J. is attempting to be more as nuanced and truthful as she can be, and she's trying to nail Leo down and everything he recalls with precision. Sarah Sanders, I heard on CNN, I think today, her response to the Woodward book,
3: Look, he may have hundreds of hours of tapes, but I think most of those probably come from some disgruntled former employees. It's a lot of anonymous sources. What I can tell you is I've worked alongside the president, under the president, for the last three years. I was part of his campaign. I've been part of the administration since day one. And I can tell you that the president, uh, everything so far that I've seen out of this book doesn't depict what's going on in the building behind me.
1: It's just amazing. Just, you know, if CJ took a page out of Sarah Sanders' book, she would have just come out and said, everything in Hoynes' article is horse. Shit. There's mm-hmm. nothing to it. It's all made up, it's all pure fiction. She's a bit more sophisticated and concerned with truth, I think, than Sarah Sanders.
0: The specificity that she's looking for
2: is pretty
0: remarkable. Weather. I think you said we could weather
2: this. How is that different from Beat the Rap? It's completely different. It's not different enough for me to go out there and fight about it. Did you tell him he shouldn't have used White House phones? No. I said, didn't you know the White House keeps records of phone calls?
0: I was reading about um, the sort of mock depositions that John Dowd was running Trump through in preparation for potential testimony. And he just kept on getting him tripped up into lies and contradictions and the ability to remember what you said. I was just thinking, what did we say in the last podcast? I certainly couldn't remember word for word.
1: Yes. I think when deposed and when testifying, I do not recall is a (laughs) frequent go-to. And probably accurate. Yes. I'm afraid I do not recall.
0: Mm Mm-hmm it's really impressive when the president says, uh, I think you said weather. It's true. He did say weather.
1: Yeah. And and not to harp on the same point again and again, but I've got to believe that Leo remembers that he suggested covering up a felony.
0: Yeah. I mean, if if he remembers the thing about the phone calls. Right. Okay. Let's talk about some of the other stuff that goes on in this episode a little bit. So another thing I wanted to talk about is it's not just CJ's performance that's great in this episode. I think um, Richard Schiff also turns in a fantastic performance, both on the dramatic side and on the funny side. So Toby has CJ's back throughout all of this. And there's one part that I really like.
2: Are you sure you want to handle this? Yeah. Okay.
0: But even then, he's not sure about it and he's leaving the office and he just gives her another look back over his shoulder just the concern for toby and his friendship with cj is really i thought really wonderfully shown in this episode full
1: disclosure i agree
0: (laughs) there's this one part at the end i'm jumping away ahead but but at the end when after cj has gone to visit the vice president um she comes back to her office it's dark and i thought i was like toby's gonna be there for her he loves her he'll he knows that she needs a friend at this moment and sure enough he he's there and I think he does something that I, I, I really appreciated and I just thought was really um, some good friend work. So he just says, she's fine. He's, he's leaving. And then she just says,
2: Toby. Yeah.
0: And he just waits. And he doesn't say anything. And then he comes back in the room. And then he sits. And he still doesn't say anything. And he, it's just like good intuition on his part not to interrupt or anything. He just keeps his mouth shut, stays in the room, and waits for her to then continue.
1: Yeah, there's a sweetness to the way he treats her.
0: Yeah, I thought that was so lovely, just that he was that patient and uh, kept his mouth shut. It's a good move. Mm-hmm. If we can stay with the end of the episode just for a second, there are a couple of sports night things that it reminded me of. What? Yeah, there. So CJ says a couple of things that reminded me of Dan Rydell. Just a couple of lines. She says,
2: I'm sorry. Don't have to apologize to me. I don't have anyone else I can apologize to.
0: Which I loved because of just how overwhelmed she is by all of these feelings. And like, to some extent, she just needs to get it out there and say, you know, express her regret publicly in a way that she hasn't been able to ever before. But it also made me think of Dan in the episode, The Apology from Sports Night. Do you remember that Episode two. Yeah. Episode two. God, that show came out of the gates just blazing. Aaron Sorkin. In The Apology, you know, Dan has to apologize because he said something that sounded like you condoned marijuana use in, in a magazine article. And he has this conversation with Isaac and Dan says, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Isaac says,
2: apologize. To who?
0: Who cares? But then it leads to like this really beautiful moment at the end of the the episode where Dan apologizes.
1: Yeah, that is a great episode, great performance by Josh Charles and Robert Guillaume. And I do like the idea that it's almost like Toby's her confessor. Yeah. She's got no one else. She she needs to say it out loud. Right. And I also like, it goes right from that to the phone call with Ben, and now she needs to just talk about something else.
2: Ben, could you do me a favor? Would you mind talking to me for a while and letting me just listen?
0: This also reminded me of Dan. In sports night i don't know if you remember this is in the episode shane episode nine the, just <laughs> kidding <laughs> it's the hit and run danny episode mm-hmm. at the end he's you know dan is really discombobulated and at the end casey says do you want to find someplace and talk about it dan says
3: hey do you think it would be okay if i um just sat down and, and just sat down for a while of course it's okay what's going on i'm in there Maybe periods of time in the conversation when I don't say anything funny. And maybe long periods when I don't say anything.
0: It's also a really nice moment and I know that this is the era of Sorkin is over, but as Lawrence is a crossover, I thought of both of those. Yeah,
1: he did a very good job of uh it's interesting that he would have touched on similar emotions.
0: Yeah. I mean I think this would have reminded me of Dan regardless of what show I was watching, but the fact that it's uh the West Wing made it feel more poignant let's talk about the the rest of toby's storyline in here sure he has to deal with the uh reps from the afl cio and I, re- I like even at the very beginning of that part of the story the way that he greets them in the lobby you know that he is friends and familiar with these folks he's friendly to everybody he's saying hello and he's starting to talk and then he sees somebody else and he's like oh and he shakes their hand yeah i loved all of that these are his Friends, really? I mean, like, there are so many times when Toby has meetings where they're going to be contentious, and he knows going into it, he's like ready for a fight. It was nice yeah. to see the. Oh, well, you other also way.
1: figure Toby Ziegler's a labor guy.
0: Yeah, of course. It was a nice way of bringing that across without having to say Toby Ziegler's a labor guy.
1: Yeah, exactly right. You see it, you feel it. That these are his people. Yeah, and I thought Ron Dean was good as the uh, sort of Hoffa-esque spokesperson for the AFL-CIO group. Yeah. Wow. The full disclosure page on IMDb features a still of me for some reason.
0: I'm telling you, because Will (laughs) plays the pivotal role.
1: I don't want to get to it. Don't, don't. uh, We got to build up to it. I'm excited. I'm excited to find out how.
0: (laughs) While Toby is trying to go into the meeting with the union guys, Ed and Larry meet him and they, um, they want to give Toby this info on China and the trade deficit, but he dismisses them. Um, he has kind of a uh I feel like a TV nyuk nyuck of uh
3: no this means
2: is about politics facts won't help
1: right yes I, I wrote that in that line too.
0: <laughs> did you write nyuck-nyuck?
1: <laughs> no, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was disappointed that at no point there was a lame joke made about artificially supporting a sagging bra market. I felt like the entire <laughs> I felt the whole storyline was was leading to something along those lines and uh, it never happened. <laughs> It was a funny line, though, about Ed and Larry being the right guys to bring in and to discuss bras. Yeah. <laughs> it was just weird. They're me the experts.
0: First of all, Richard's performance of just the word bras is great. So, and Larry then go to the other meeting and the other plot, they go from one B storyline to the other. That's right. They get into the base closure meeting that Josh is running and that Ryan keeps trying to sort of insert himself into. But there's a great part then when when the bra stuff comes up. Anyway, it turns out he has to he he does need them. And so then Josh comes in and says, Toby needs to talk to you about China. And as soon as he says China, William Duffy, aka Larry, looks at Ed and gives him a grin, like, see, we told that guy to give <laughs> to take our memo. <laughs> That's right. He's vindicated.
1: Speaking of which, not Josh's finest moment when he inexplicably says Do the Chinese even
0: need bras? What the f- josh that was
1: i went that was the uh that was more than bumping on that was the needle scratches the vinyl record sound effect for me i wrote just
0: stop talking why why
1: yeah how how did that make it out of committee
0: yep oh i know why i'd wrote written just stop talking because he had also said previously
2: because reviewing a cost benefit analysis for every military base in the country is as mind numbing as a Radiohead concert.
0: Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> and I was like, come on, Josh. I mean, how dare you? I think it is uh, consistent, but man, that is a dude who I would not enjoy hanging out with. Yeah, Josh thinks Radiohead is mind numbing. If you remember in Shadow of Two Gunmen, he says, uh, Mario,
3: We gotta replace this music. We gotta replace it with some Doobie Brothers. Josh, you gotta-
0: oh, dear. I like the Doobie Brothers, though.
1: <laughs> I'm going to take back that, oh dear. <laughs> oh, Blackwater.
0: I'd be open to his doobie brother's recommendation if he didn't also say Radiohead was mine. Now. I hear you. Okay. Full disclosure.
1: Full disclosure the Greg Brock CJ scene. Why did they play it out the way they do that whole, first of all, love Sam Robards. I haven't seen him in years, but I know him. He's a great guy and a wonderful actor and the scion of Jason Robards and really? Lauren Bacall.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yes. That is quite a talented family there.
0: That's a pretty good bring your parents to school day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and Sam's great here as Greg Brock, but I don't understand the coyness about basically they just make a deal, but the whole thing, they play it as if CJ's office may be
0: bugged. I think I think the idea is that in the future, so, okay, so he comes into CJ's office and she asks him for an advanced copy of his article, he says, I cannot give it to you. I have a policy. You cannot have it. And then as he's leaving, he drops a disc, which I thought first was, Oh, subtle move. But then both of them just carry the conversation on while staring at the disc and like, looking at it. I know. It's not concealed at all. It's in the middle of the floor. <laughs> yeah, And, you know, and it's a disc that says hoines on it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's really could be uh, more obvious. But I think it's so that if one were to testify, you could say, what was the content of your conversation? You she could say, I asked him for an advanced copy and he said he wouldn't give it to me. But testify
1: to what? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. What's the... I, I, you know, there's no... They, look, this White House doesn't even care about felonies. <laughs> also, Where she... She, he, she asked for an advanced copy, and I, I gave it to her. <laughs> That's the one thing I don't understand. It's almost like, it's like this huge spy thing, or like one of those scenes where he's like, let me write down the figure, and he writes down a piece of paper. I'll need that much money right <laughs> like i can't say it. it's like why don't they just say oh yeah i'll give you an advanced copy but here's what i'm going to need in return i guess because it would be less exciting to watch but i ended up I watching so. it going what the hell are they doing with this thing on the floor and the wink uh, wink I mean, uh, well
0: <laughs> i'm even thinking about what i just said too like as if in some kind of uh deposition the questioning would only stop there you know it's like did you but did you get an advanced copy damn
1: it oh, damn
0: it the whole floor thing didn't work and, and how did you get it from a disc and where did you get that but it's maybe well okay here's he the dropped thing. it he dropped it It was an accident he didn't intentionally give me
1: i guess you know i get all that it's just i kept thinking well, but why do they have to do this yeah what's secretively or what's the plausible deniability for
0: or what are the stakes who are or? they gonna die too yeah <laughs> The thing I would like to ask them under oath is, how does CJ have a zip drive attached to her computer? Also a fair question.
1: What do you call those big? I remember I used to have a big blue drive. That's a zip drive.
0: Yeah. It's a zip disk and a zip drive. Zip disk. Yeah. Yep. They were uh, a big deal because I think they could hold 100 megabytes.
1: And they were big. Yeah. (laughs) They were
0: physically big. Well, you need a lot of real estate so you can write hoins on the label (laughs) in huge letters.
1: Hoins. Top secret. Please return to Greg Brock
0: not for CJ parentheses for (laughs) CJ. Okay. Let's go to Josh's meeting here with the uh, folks in charge of closing bases in order to increase military efficiency. Mm -hmm. Ryan Pierce is being an obnoxious little snot throughout the whole thing. But then in the end, it turns out he was right. He did the right thing. He was smart. He did. And did you fall for it? Did you get tricked by his?
1: I did. And I was in the episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I did. It, I, did I didn't. Too. Uh, it, yeah, I didn't catch it, and I really liked it. I did too. And I thought Jesse Radford was particularly good, and of course Brad as well. I liked the way that whole thing played out. I liked the way Lawrence wrote the scene, and that Ryan would clue in Josh, knowing that they're being watched, and doing it, and he's, and he's actually trying to fire.
0: You playing this? Do you want me to look like I'm crying? I can. I can do that. I can look like I'm crying
1: the whole way that played out. It was very funny and clever and a great reversal that I did not see coming.
0: Yeah. Ryan um, totally jujitsued the entire meeting, pulled one over on everybody, including his boss. And it is really like wonderful and kind of generous that at the end, he's still acting like, of course, Josh knew what he was doing the whole time. Right. That was was
1: great. Uh, That whole piece was wonderful.
0: Yeah. Josh asked him, you planned this? And I was like, be cool dude now that you've like now that you've figured that out try and act at least like
1: yeah well actually and they're both they're both very very good in the scene because brad has to go through a complex series of emotions (laughs) uh, and realizations because he's incredibly pissed at him and then he's confused and pissed And then he's confused and starting to get it. And then he's starting to get it and admiring him, but still a little pissed. It's just a lot going on. And it's very, very funny and uh, a joy to watch.
0: I think this is a long play that has paid off. You know, like they've really built this character up as someone who I was going to find annoying. And I did for a very long time and snotty and, you know, self-important and entitled. And he plays into all of that stuff in this episode when he gets up and he's going to call the congressman and Congressman Finn anyway. And you know, I was like, what is this guy doing? He's gonna Uh, blow it for everyone. Just like, and I thought it was more of this. I I thought it was gonna be more like outrageous. Oh, this character is so annoying. He's just gonna, I can't believe this. And then they totally turned it around on me.
1: Yeah, I agree. Lawrence did a neat trick there.
0: Yeah. You know what was another turnaround I had? I had originally written. So Carol keeps asking CJ again about phone calls from Ranger Ben.
2: And I've got Ben holding on line. I cannot line. talk
0: to Ben right now. I know. And I had originally written "Take a Hint, Carol" in all caps. I
1: couldn't even write it down because I love Melissa Fitz too much. Yeah, but, but I thought, "Carol, come on, this is enough." I, I, I wouldn't write it down out of respect for Melissa Fitz. You obviously, <laughs> yeah, obviously don't feel the same way, but.
0: But then the episode ended and CJ calls Ben and really has this wonderful interaction with him that is really meaningful and she really needs. And so I had to write down after that, it turns out Carol was right, Rishi. (laughs) (laughs) Carol knew. Yeah. Another neat little reversal. It was. I had written down, um, Ben needs to learn how to send an email instead of calling incessantly. Anyway, it ended up being the right thing.
1: And how great is Allison, even just into that last scene, yay even unto the flintel, when she's no longer on camera, and you just hear the, you know, we don't know what Ben is saying, but we hear that it's giving CJ a little laugh, and she sounds like she's decompressing a little bit. Just Allison's performance is spectacular to, to the last moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the end of the episode as CJ's returned from her visit to Hoynes. But let's go to the moment where she decides to go see Hoynes. And this is where I think, very briefly, it's revealed Will is actually the winner of, of this episode. Brilliant. So, again, Will is right there with everyone else about this stuff, not only as a former comrade of theirs, but in this capacity yeah. as chief advisor to the vice president. This
1: is a threat to his bread and butter. And we see Will's pure, practical, political side, even in his quick aside to Josh. The vice president would like to urge you not to close bases in any state with more than one electoral vote.
0: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Finally, Will says,
1: We gotta take a shot at Hoynes. We gotta let him know we have ways of fighting back. More ways? We need a list. Of what? A list of all of his private, on-the-job screw-ups. Every time Hoynes gave the president bad advice, every mistake he ever made, big and small.
0: And that inspires Leo and Josh and Toby to start thinking of all those moments that do in fact exist, proving that Will is right. Will then says, oh, we can start leaking it to the press. But then CJ says, no, give it to me. I'll fire a warning shot. And this to me felt like, uh... so she's taking Will's strategy, but then she steps it up. In a scene that's previously been referenced on The West Wing, it reminded me of Michael Corleone volunteering to shoot Salazzo in uh, Godfather 1.
2: It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business.
0: Episode two. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to do it himself that he's gonna that he'll shoot the gun in the toilet exactly with the gun in the toilet and then um cj goes in and she drops the list on the vice president and he he's like okay i got it he's like this is effective but then that's it turns out it's not even that's not even the most lethal weapon that she has she asks him about this thing you know that leads to the revelation about the two of them she says i'm sorry you
2: run for president the press is going to find some of those women And if you try to attack them, if you get your opposition research team working on them, if you try to destroy them, if you try to say they're all bimbos and liars, then I'll be standing right there with them, and I'll be ready to take anything you or your people throw at me. Anything. So don't make me tell the truth about you, because it will be the whole truth.
0: Leave the gun, CJ. Take the cannoli. Take the cannoli.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not the prettiest side of politics we're seeing in terms of Will's plan and their collation, or that's the word, of this list. They're putting this list together of everything every screw up that uh has made even toby concedes i hope they never make a list for me
0: yeah toby says he says there wouldn't be enough paper yeah
1: so it's you know they really are fighting dirty rather than just denying what this guy has to say the aspects of it that they find that they believe are counterfactual they're getting right in the gutter
0: yeah i mean he went low and they are going low
1: exactly which is always my approach i go lower (laughs) on twitter anyway
0: Let's talk about this part of the episode we haven't touched on yet, which is school vouchers for Washington, D.C. First of all, James Pickens Jr. plays the mayor of D.C., and he is so good. He is good. It's a shame that he is not just always on the show. He's so good. James Pickens Jr. has been on many, many things, though. He was on Grey's Anatomy for a million episodes.
1: Oh, that's right. He's a Shondaland uh, denizen.
0: Yeah, and he was on NYPD Blue, I think. Back in the day as well for a little bit. He's been on um, Six Feet Under. He was in Rob Lowe's show, The Lion's Den. He is uh, awesome. He was in a lot of episodes of The X-Files. If you uh, remember that, he played Alvin Kirsch in The X-Files. Anyway. He's good actor. He's fantastic. It was very neat how in this episode, they took a couple of different jabs at DC. I don't know if jabs is the right, is the fair thing to say, but you know.
1: Well, the mayor himself has some complaints about uh, the position he's in. Yeah, The exactly. unique position he's in.
0: It's a city whose budget is controlled by Congress and the president. And despite that or because of it, there are problems in D.C.'s infrastructure. The schools aren't great and the water is bad.
1: Yes, that was very, that certainly um, resonated with Flint yeah, water still being toxic. I mean, it's played for a laugh.
2: Can I get you anything? Carol, do we have anything? Uh, water. Yeah, oh, thanks.
3: It's D.C. water. I'm good.
0: Yeah. It's played for a laugh and it's played entirely separately from the storyline about school vouchers. But I thought it was great that they included that joke in this episode. You know, this thing about, oh, the DC's water is terrible, which at the time it really was. I mean, that that was a fact in the early 2000s, DC tap water was terrible. The lead levels were 83 times more than the safe limit. Unbelievable. It's a fair shot, you know, when Grant when yeah. Brock says I'm, he's not going to have the the tap water. But I thought brilliant to include it in an episode where we also see the mayor of D.C. talking about, you know, the the plight that D.C. public school students are in.
1: What do you make, first of all, of President Bartlett's calling Charlie in from the other room in order to have this quick little conversation? And then what do you make of his, in fact, turning his mind around on the issue?
0: Yeah. Well, okay, before we get to that part, I just want to say about Charlie that his reaction to the mayor of D.C. is awesome. I love, you know, before when they just mentioned that he's coming to see the president, that he says, about time. And then later when he's actually next to the mayor, he's like a little starstruck. And I like that, too. He's kind of fidgety, and he's just like happy that he gets to meet him. And it's so cute.
3: Mr. Mayor, Hi, I'm Charlie Young. Hey, Charlie. Good to meet you. How you doing? I'm doing great. Just great. I wanted to introduce myself because,
0: well, I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. I voted for you both times. Well, I hope you're going to vote for me next time. Every time. This is one of the top cute Charlie moments.
1: I agree. It doesn't try to seem cool at all. It's like, I voted for you twice, I'd vote for you again. Yeah. Like, it's just pure enthusiasm and a little bit of uh, giddiness. It's obviously yeah. a little bit of hero for him.
0: Yeah. And that top cute Charlie list is tough to get on. But this one is up there for me. So then <laughs> I thought, wow. You just need a sample set of one for your data to make your entire decision.
1: Oh, well, if Charlie's for it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> done. It did feel a little bit like, let me tell you what I know. I have a black friend, in fact. <laughs> let me get him on the phone. He'll it tell you.
1: felt a little bit like that to me, too.
0: Yeah. It then made me think of the time when, when I was in, uh, I think second or third grade, when we had like a demonstration a day about Native Americans in our school, and one of the kids said, "We should ask Rishi; he's Indian." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that. Part and did you was... correct?
1: I would say, "No, I'm sorry; we say Native American." <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I thought that part was a little suspect, but I did also like that the president got it reversed on him. You know, he calls in Charlie thinking, Charlie's going to support me. You know, look, here's a guy who went to public school. Look, he's, look at where he's sitting. He's, he's outside of the Oval Office, and he, he tries to tell the mayor as well.
3: And you couldn't be a better advertisement for them.
0: Ha! Huh. And then he says, let me clear my schedule and ask my valet to fetch us a spot of tea. <laughs> but um, Charlie comes in and then reveals that, yeah, I went to public school, but I would have liked to have gone to this private school, Gonzaga. Why? There's never been a shooting there. They don't even have metal detectors. Almost everyone goes to college. I thought it was great. And um, also one that the president probably should have seen coming.
1: Yes. I also felt the same way too. And there's kind of look on the mayor's face like, oh, I knew what he was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's only so much you can fit into a single episode of The West Wing, but there's no conversation about maybe putting vouchers aside and putting more funding towards public schools that don't have to be the kind of schools that Charlie's describing. You know, it's a very complex issue.
0: I feel like there's enough in the background there to suggest, you know, the mayor says, look, the Republicans are going to give me enough money for this Talking about the larger systemic issues, I'm never going to get anywhere with an opposition Congress and all this stuff. This is actually something concrete that I can do to help 200 kids out of 68,000. Let me just do this. I thought it was really, I thought it was really interesting. Lawrence O'Donnell was actually a substitute school teacher in the Boston area. And that experience changed his mind about vouchers. I think it would be uh, fascinating to hear his perspective on, on including that. I also loved the way that the DC's kind of tendency to get short shrift was highlighted just by the mayor keeps getting passed off. You know, they they keep asking him to wait. Like he doesn't get the kind of attention certainly that the base closure meeting gets or even the union reps you know it's an interesting hierarchy that they show in this episode you know where where it's like these guys get whatever they want they get the nice room these guys they can have espn whatever then the union reps get this storage room and folding chairs but they get you know and they get toby but toby has to leave sometimes but the mayor he's never been invited to the to the white house yeah Not during this presidency. Yeah. And then even just walking to whatever meeting Josh has to keep asking him to hold on while he goes to attend to something else. Fair point. I thought that was well done too. The other thing about that meeting with the mayor and and the president though was his point about how the president and Josh weren't really in a position to talk to him or lecture him about the value of public schools in a way because they had not gone to public schools. You know, there are Democrats who are constantly talking about the how education is the silver bullet and all this stuff, but they haven't gone to public schools.
1: A little bit like Senator Hunt busting Josh Lyman for not having served in the military. Like you're gonna you're gonna talk to me.
0: Right. Yeah. And again, just like with the DC Water thing, you know, there's a great setup to that earlier when Josh is talking to Donna about Ryan Pierce.
2: You left the kid alone with the brass? Just for a minute. He actually seems to have a feel for that stuff. He's faking it. If you learn one thing in prep school, it's how to pretend like you always know what's going on. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is true. But a point that isn't raised in that episode, although they certainly, it's, maybe it's close enough with the thing that the mayor says about, you know, you guys didn't go to public school. Mm -hmm. No child of a president in the last hundred years, over a hundred years, no child has gone to public school of of an American president except for Jimmy Carter. That is a telling statistic. I mean, you know, and I'm sure there are all kinds of things that have to be taken into consideration, security, Secret Service, all that stuff. But still, for a group of people... Yeah,
1: espousing the virtue of public education.
0: They they aren't also willing to subject their children to it in Washington, D.C.
1: Proud to say that my son has gone to only public education. My daughter, some public, some private. Mm-hmm. What are you guys doing with Watson? <laughs>
0: Watson's being homeschooled.
1: Oh, that's another way to go and equally
0: valid. (laughs) I am a product of a mix of public and private education myself. I went to uh, public school until eighth grade. My sister had gone to public school for her entire elementary and high school education. And then she got to college and she told my parents, I am not prepared for this. And you need Uh to figure out something else for Rishi. You need to send him somewhere else. You should get him to whatever the best school is that is financially feasible. And I ended up going to Exeter, which we couldn't afford. But Exeter, you know, was the school that stepped up and paid for everything. And it was amazing. I mean, it was an incredible experience. And I'm so happy that I did that. What a good and nurturing big sister. Oh, yeah. I mean, in addition to introducing me to the West Wing, there are many, many things that she's responsible for. She's a good one. Yeah one thing i was thinking about with the vouchers too and the cost of the schools even if you have your tuition paid for because this is something that i experienced even if you have your classes paid for there are so that's not it yeah there are so many things that end up coming up one thing that i am forever grateful to exeter for is this it felt a little bit, I don't know, I guess a little bit embarrassing at the time or something, but I, I feel like I can talk about it now. The cost of the prom, our senior prom was like a fancy prom, you know, it's like fancy private school prom and it was at uh, Ipswich Castle. It was, you know, this like really nice thing, but to go, you had to rent to tux and you had to buy a mm. ticket and I had to buy a ticket for me and, you know, my, my date. Aye, aye, aye. The combined cost of all of that stuff was something like $140, you know, with the tux rental and the two tickets. And that's just not money that I had, you know, I mean, there was no, uh, anyway, oh. there are these things that, you know, oh, that's
1: painful. Up. I thought you were just going to say books. Books are so damn expensive. Exactly.
0: Well, yeah, there's books too. Anyway, one of the wonderful things about that school was, I mean, there are a lot of kids, almost half the school gets financial aid of some kind, but uh, for someone like me who was there on, on a full ride, they actually... The financial aid office covered that stuff they covered the cost of the tux rental and the ticket so i could still have the full school experience the full experience yeah i thought that was really wonderful but i'm sure that's not you know that's not every school has those kinds of resources or necessarily that kind of generously thinking financial aid staff Mm -hmm. yeah so even if you get into the school there's just there's so much so many other expenses how did you like your private school josh
1: Let's see. I went to yeshiva for first through eighth grade. I went to public kindergarten. I went to yeshiva <laughs> for first through eighth grade and loved it. I went to Westchester Day School, Mamaroneck, New York, an orthodox yeshiva. And I got, I think, an excellent education there. And because of the religious aspect of the curriculum, ethical issues were a part of the core curriculum, and that's something hmm. that I, I treasure from my early educational experiences. And then I went to kind of a classic college prep private high school in the Bronx called Horace Mann, which if you want to Google, you can read about Horace Mann and its last many decades of questionable goings-on. <laughs> but I, I thought I got a very good education there, and it was, you know, maybe a little bit too much of a... too much of an attempt to funnel its graduates into the best colleges, Mm. because because I don't know how important that is in the end. But I also also had a wonderful arts program, and I really did a lot of great theater there, and there were wonderful teachers, and I, I had a great experience
0: there. And how well did you learn to always pretend like you know what's going on? I think
1: you had to go to, maybe I went to, I thought you had to go to boarding school for that, because <laughs> as, as if, if anything is clear from these 120 or so episodes, <laughs> even when I have a sense of what's going on, I can't, uh, I can't radiate it.
0: <laughs>
1: so, I
0: don't know. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about Ed and Larry. I think this is a tremendous episode for Ed and Larry. Yeah, sure. There's this part when they get called out of the base closure meeting and they have to go help Toby with the unions. Josh tells Ryan and Donna, you know, the, the, really what they have to do is just ask, and how much will that save every few minutes? But before that scene, there's a little bit of dialogue from Ed. You, you can't even hear it entirely because we, it mostly comes through the closed door. But Ed has his version of how much will that save? And it is a work of art. <laughs> Do you have long run projections for the economies of scale you think are achievable through the net consolidations of troops and material It's all of your recommendations And I thought that is an excellent way to say and how much money will that save like you're really paying attention? <laughs> it's a great way to pretend like you know what's going on. Right, there you go. And then Ed and Larry uh, get to break down the incredibly complicated dynamics that go on with trade relations, which seems a little bit silly to have to explain to uh, to those yes. guys. I feel like they probably know. I thought so too. They're like the import of cars will affect me. Yeah. Anyway.
1: There can never be too much Ed and Larry though, I yeah, have to say. I think so they, too. Uh, I love my Ed and Larry, Peter and Duffy.
0: Please tell me, I don't think this is probably a thing, but please, I would just love if there were an episode coming up somewhere between now and the end of the series that was told from the point of view of Ed and Larry. <laughs> would they carry the A story?
1: Wouldn't that be nice? No, I don't, that's not going to happen. I mean, I think possibly the reboot could be entirely from their point of view.
0: It would be awesome. I would. I love mean, in to... my
1: mind, they're living together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're in their 60s. They're, they're Bert and Ernie. Exactly. <laughs> that's
1: right. They've both got girlfriends in Canada and they're very happy together.
0: There's an episode of Matt Fraction's run of Hawkeye. Um, for Marvel Now that, you know, came out a few years ago that is truly tremendous. In the first issue of the series, Hawkeye, Clinton Barton, it's really about Clinton Barton who is Hawkeye. It's about him while he's not an Avenger. It's just like him. It's basically like almost like a sitcom set up where Really?
1: It's, that sounds good to me.
0: That's so good. It's just him in the building in which he lives and his neighbors and no, like, other real superhero stuff except for little tangential things like Iron Man comes in to help him set up as a DVD player. So, uh-huh. Uh, But uh, at one point he he rescues a dog from some gangsters and he calls the dog, uh, pizza dog because the dog eats his pizza. Anyway, later on in the run, there is an issue that is told entirely from the point of view of the dog. And it's amazing. There's no dialogue that's discernible except for words that the dog understands. Brilliant. I love it. So I thought you could do the similar thing with Ed and Larry. (laughs) They don't understand any words except for the ones that are directly related to (laughs) Chinese bras. I don't know. There's one other piece of continuity, a very light one that I appreciated. In addition to this being kind of the part two to Life on Mars in terms of the main plot, we get the return of Claire Huddle. Who's that? Do you remember Claire Huddle? Sure don't. Claire Huddle's the woman who delivers the vice president's resignation letter. Hmm. Sure, now I know. Remember? She's played by Mandy Freund. And she doesn't have any lines in this episode, but she's the one who lets CJ in to see Hoynes. I love that she's still there. I was thinking when I was watching again, when, when they said, oh, Hoynes doesn't have a staff, he doesn't have people. I thought, he's still got Claire Huddle. Ha. Huh. Here he's now working in a law office, but this person has stuck with him. And I just love that detail.
1: Kind of the way that you, you still see Will sometimes. <laughs> They're very thorough that way. I I keep that guy around. Like, the, he used to be...
0: Uh, The most well-paid extra. (laughs) One of the things that was so neat about that, even though she doesn't have any lines, it really writes this other part of the episode because it makes you think about Claire's own character. Like, this person who knows about Hoynes' scandal was there for the reveal of it, who delivered the resignation letter. Yeah,
1: well, well, give her an episode. One episode from Claire Huddle's perspective.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: We'll take a quick break now, and when we come back... Lawrence O'Donnell will talk to us. Support for the West Wing Weekly is brought to you by Safe, Home security done right.
0: Simply Safe is home security you'll actually love using. It's really thoughtfully designed so you can blanket your home with protection and never notice.
1: It's got all kinds of great little touches like gentle reminders if you're leaving the house with a window open.
0: And most importantly, Safe is really good at its job cnet the wire cutter and pc mag all named it their top pick for home security over 2 million people use it every day
1: learn more about how simplisafe can help you today go to simplisafe.com westwing that's s-i-m-p-l-i-s-a-f-e dot slash westwing
0: the westwing weekly is brought to you by squarespace they are the engine behind
1: our website
0: it's true and they could be the engine behind your website too for whatever you need whether it's for your business or your art, or some other pursuit that you want to put out there in the world.
1: That's right. If you've ever thought about having an online presence, Squarespace will make it fun and easy to realize your dream.
0: They make it easy by giving you beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers. So even if you don't know anything about web design, you can make a website that looks professional and it's actually easy to use behind the scenes.
1: That's right, and they've got things like free and secure hosting, built-in SEO, that's search engine optimization. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And there's 24 7 award winning customer support.
0: So go ahead and make your website. There's no harm in trying because right now you can actually get a free trial by going to squarespace.com slash Westwing. And then when you're ready to launch, if you use the offer code Westwing, you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain.
1: That's squarespace.com slash Westwing. And
0: now back to the show. Joining us now is Lawrence O'Donnell. He's the host of The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC. He was a producer and writer on The West Wing, and his work included writing this episode, Full Disclosure. Thanks so much for joining us, Lawrence. We haven't spoken to you since way back in season two, when you played President Bartlett's father, and a lot has changed since then. We're now in season five. Um, We're in the post-Aaron Sorkin years, and um, in season five, you came back to the show as a consulting producer. And I was wondering if you could tell us, if we could start by having you tell us about that experience. How did that come about? What was that conversation like when you first heard about Aaron leaving and then got this gig as a consulting producer?
3: Well, that last episode that we talked about was my last episode on the show in my first run of the show. I did the first two years of the show. And then I left and went off to uh, create my own show, which did get on NBC for a short run It was called Mr. Sterling, and it was starring Josh Brolin as a young and suddenly appointed member of the United States Senate. That was, I'm sorry to tell the world, the single most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Running a show on network television, I believe, is the most difficult of human achievements. It's really the crushing schedule. And by the way, that's the thing that show business has changed. Show business has said to, you know, people like me in that position now, don't worry, you don't have to do 22. You can do 10. You know, you can do 12. It's that crush of 22 episodes that you were supposed to deliver for NBC, CBS, ABC at that time in those days. And that's just an inhuman attempt. After my show was on the air for, I don't know, six or so episodes, uh, there was a trend line in the ratings that was disappointing to NBC. And so so we were on the road to cancellation, was pretty clear to John, and we hadn't quite gotten the word yet, and I'm sure John Wells got the word before I did. And John called me up and said, listen, if your show doesn't get picked up for next season, we'd really love to have you back at the West Wing." And I was reluctant, and I said, well, you know, I've already written for that show. I've done that. And he then intimated without specifically saying that it would be very, very different uh, in the next season. Probably very, very different. And when I put the words together in my head, what it sounded like to me was, it's entirely possible that Aaron wouldn't be there and that John would, in effect, take over the show. And that became a public fact not long after that conversation. And so that actually made it really interesting to me, because I looked at it as, I've done that show, but I've never done it under the John Wells version of the show. And John is the master of showrunning in Hollywood history. And so I went back to it in the spirit of, I am going to go back now and take a course called Show Running 101. And I am going to sit there beside John Wells, and I'm going to study how this is done. Hmm. And I'm going to study how he somehow holds 10,000 pounds over his head every day running ER at the time and and then running the West Wing, and doesn't even make it look strenuous after I've been completely defeated by it. And so that was my intent in going back. I really just wanted to take a graduate course in show running being the laziest person in the business, certainly at that point, I fought for and got the two days a week deal. So I was headed for the laziest possible version of working at the West Wing, making very good money for doing it. And, you know, two days a week. And so you'll notice the one we're talking about is episode 15 of season five because I was sitting there on my hands hoping I would never write an episode the whole year. And at a certain point, John turned to me and said, "Uh, I know you're not eager to, but I really, could you possibly do 15 for us? And I, of course, I, I would do whatever John asked.
1: How different was the writer's room under John as compared to under Aaron?
3: It was very different. The, the big, big difference was that what happened in the writer's room was always real. The biggest thing is you never wasted a minute. You didn't waste a single second. And I noticed this actually in the first meeting, because these are three-hour meetings. And writers' rooms normally spend the first 90 minutes joking around doing nothing. Like, it has nothing to do with the show. And it's literally just, like, waking up your voice box and talking and joking. And it's entirely, it's joke-filled for the first 90 minutes. And everyone is avoiding getting to the work. With John Wells, that period lasts less than 90 seconds. And he goes straight to it. And you know this guy has a million things to do, you know, as soon as he leaves this room. And I remember in the first meeting uh, that John was running, making a couple of jokes. And by the third time I made a joke, like an hour in, I thought, whoa, I'm not going to do that anymore because I just used up 45 seconds of John Wells' time. On a goddamn joke. Like, this can't, I can't do that. The other thing about the Aaron room is, it wasn't always real, meaning, I don't think Aaron would be surprised for anyone to suggest that he can be moody. And so what I came to realize was, things like, oh, I have a very good idea. I think I've just figured out how to solve this problem. But it's Monday, and it's 11 a.m., and so I'm not going to mention it. Because it'll get shot down right now, because that's just the way it feels right now. But Thursday, (laughs) when Aaron needs to deliver an act one for Friday morning shooting, this idea is going to be great. This idea (laughs) is going to unlock the puzzle and it's going to go straight into the script. And so There was a certain kind of management, and I was able to read where Aaron was on that curve, you know, of, will this click with him right now? And with John Wells, it's machine-like. If you have a good idea and you mention a good idea, bang, it's in right now. And it's not a matter of mood, it's not a matter of is this Monday or do we wait for John to be desperate on Thursday? None of that was there. And so it was very, very different that way I want to turn now to this episode. I wanted to ask you, how did this
0: main storyline about Hoynes coming back, where did that come from? Was that one of the uh, ideas that you pitched, or was that something that had sort of been collectively conceived in the writer's
3: room? No, it was not collectively conceived. You know, I was watching the show when I wasn't working on it. And Mm -hmm. so one of the episodes that really intrigued me, that, that had things in it that I really, really liked, was Life on Mars. And what I loved about it was... We were watching, you know, Leo and Bartlett and and the team deal with a crisis. And it's a kind of crisis that America knew could come to a White House by that point, a sex scandal. And one of the things I loved about it was watching the language that Leo used when He was talking to Hoynes about what happened here. Hmm. And I know that if I had been working at the show at that time, I would have been the supplier of that language. And I don't know who was. Probably Aaron. It's perfect, you know. So Leo says to Hoynes at a certain point.
2: What about it's none of your business? I leaked classified information. It is their business. It's also a felony.
3: Are you in a position to deny it? And I loved that, because that's the way lawyers talk. Lawyers do not say to their criminal defendant clients, did you do it? That's goofy TV lawyering. They never say, did you do it? They say things like, was anyone else in the room? Would there be any records that you were in Miami that day? So Leo is using very professional language in that situation. You know, because the West Wing has this real halo image around the characters, I think people miss just how normal some of these political actors are. And I don't use normal in a highly honorable way. Because if you look at that scene that that Aaron wrote, the president of the United States, who is by image of this fictional character, just the most Pollyanna honorable president in history, he is standing there willing to conspire with the vice president of the United States to cover up a crime. So the interesting thing in that scene is that Hoynes actually has the moral high ground. You know, the adulterer has the moral high ground over these guys. And so I looked at that and was absolutely fascinated by it. Another thing that I was fascinated about in the West Wing from the first time I saw the pilot was CJ's personal life. Because there's that fabulous first CJ moment where she's on that exercise machine and there's a guy beside her who she's clearly kind of taken a shine to and and checking out and looking at and her beeper goes off and she has to go deal with the president of the United States. And I thought, oh, I really want to explore how her personal life works. I mean, clearly she's of a certain age. She's got a biological clock ticking and yet she's married to the presidency and the protection of the president. And so how does she deal with any of this? And so that's just something I've always had my eye on. And with CJ is what about that private life, that personal life? And, you know, I know the way life works in those environments and and what can happen and how the men are and how it all works. And so that was my choice to put cj in this position and and for her to have a secret and you know when you're that far into a tv series you're in season five it's very hard for any of your characters to have a secret it's really really hard and this is the kind of thing that would be a secret and so it really came out of my first minute obsession with cj's private life
1: so here's my question back with the scene from Life on Mars when the three of them are talking about what Hoynes should do and what his next move should be. How come in full disclosure, when the staff eventually come up with that plan of collating a list of Hoynes' worst screw-ups that they can leverage against him...
2: The mess he made with Mexico on immigration.
1: The way he tipped their
2: hand on the energy bill.
3: And lost the entire New York delegation on the transportation bill.
1: What happened to the felonious leaking of classified information? Why isn't that the number one bullet point that they have over him?
3: Well, because that's already going to be public information. That's going to be in the book. That's going to be in the woman's story. She's already revealing that. So that's not something they have to deal with. It's probably already come out, in fact. It's probably already been out there and dealt with. Oh, in Helen Baldwin's book. Yeah, one of the many things in the West Wing that got set up and then that that ship was just sort of sent out to sea and we never checked it out. But if if you consider the way he resigned, he said he's resigning because this is public information. He's not resigning just over an affair. He's resigning over the fact that she is revealing that he leaked classified information.
0: Josh, do you feel satisfied? I do. Excellent. I wanted to ask about another part of this episode, which was the school vouchers for the DC public school system aspect of the plot. I had read that that part of the story was inspired in part by, you know, what had really happened with the mayor of D.C. introducing this to President Bush, but also that it was inspired in part by your own time as a substitute school teacher in Boston.
3: Yeah, I was a teacher for uh, years and I was writing a book at the time. And what bothers me about the issues involving public education is that it's one of the things for which more ignorance is thrown around by politicians than, than most other subjects. Uh, they've never been teachers. They don't know what the struggle is. They don't know what they're up against. And I have to say, when you're in the classroom and you're in these struggling public schools that have no hope of any kind of significant change in their struggle in the foreseeable future, and you're sitting there dealing with a very, very bright fourth grader, who is brighter than you were in the fourth grade and you know what is ahead for her as she marches through this system and you know that the way this system is going to serve her, she's going to be lucky to graduate from high school. You also know at the same time that, it, that within walking distance from here is a school in which she would thrive. One of the things that I used to watch when I was working in Washington was that the most vehement of the anti-school voucher liberal Democrats had in their lifetimes never spent a day in a public school, not as a student, and not as a visitor, and not as a teacher. And that bothered me a lot. If I could have taken one of those kids across the street to the parochial school or to another private school, I would have done it, uh, because I would have saved that one educational life. And when you're dealing with real people and real kids whose names you know as the mayor is, And as Charlie is in this episode, it's very hard for them to turn away from the face of the real child and say, no, because of a principle that is not easy for me to explain to you, you must stay in this school and you cannot go to Gonzaga, as Charlie wanted to go to in high school. It, and so, yeah, that was very much a personal piece of writing. And interestingly, from the liberal West Wing TV show, I am told that it has become a fixture in the kind of Republican-based school voucher world out there that is that pushes school vouchers. And I'm told that they show that scene <laughs> of uh, the mayor in the Oval Office routinely at their big gatherings.
0: And how do you feel about the reality of what the school voucher program has actually turned out to be? Because it doesn't feel very West Wing in its um, execution in the 14 years since that was implemented.
3: Well, like everything government does, it's politicized. And so, you know, there's a I think there's a reasonable and useful version of a school voucher program. And then there's bad versions of it, you know, and we we usually do the bad version of whatever it is.
0: (laughs) Did Democrats, especially I'm thinking about Democrats in Massachusetts, you know, give you feedback about your inclusion of this issue? I am thinking about, you know, Boston Latin is a public school in Boston. It's the oldest public school in America.
3: And it's a it's a tremendous school. Did anyone say, hey, how dare you betray us like this? Well, Boston Latin is the best high school in America, I believe. And um, you get into Boston Latin by taking an exam. So it's not an available public high school to anyone who wants to go there. Let's not pretend that it is. So there you are right there within the public school system saying, we are going to make some decisions here that will determine in many ways the future of your life. And when I was a kid, I took the exam to get into Boston Latin School when I was in the sixth grade. And I got in and I was like everybody in my neighborhood, desperately afraid to go because it was like The wicked hottest school in the world and so i didn't go because i was afraid of it and i took the exam for it for high school and i got in and i didn't go again and i went to an easier let's get this straight i went to an easier and not as good catholic school you know so so there's the subject has levels of complexity that could allow you to go on forever and boston latin is one of the great elements of this story if you tried to apply the boston latin school model around the country and you tried to bring it to scale, you would be doing a lot of harm to other public school kids who couldn't quite make the cut on that exam. Mm. And so there's a lot of ways for you to harm kids and harm their opportunities in the public school system, a lot of ways to do it. But you know, the thing that got the biggest, the only real big issue reaction (laughs) was an offhand reference in the base closure discussions about closing Fort Drum in upstate New York.
2: First on the list is Fort Drum in upstate New York. Its primary mission is deep snow combat training.
3: Commission's consensus is that deep snow is no longer a training priority. Well, the reason I wrote that is when I was working in the Senate for Senator Moynihan of New York, we were always fighting the closing of Fort Drum, and we were always winning. And so I always knew Fort Drum is always going to be on the chopping block. And so I threw it out there on the chopping block, and bang, the new senator from New York, Hillary Clinton, immediately writes a letter, not to me, who she knows has written the episode. And I, by the way, am a real person. She writes a letter to the West Wing, addressed to Mr. Josh Lyman. And that letter is a letter of complaint to Josh Lyman saying, how dare you suggest that we could close down Fort Drum? And uh, so that was, the, for me, the single best policy reaction we ever got. And Senator Clinton did successfully keep Fort Drum open.
0: That's so great. I have a link to that letter, and we'll we'll put it up on the website so people can can read that. <laughs> oh, and there's a quote from you, Lawrence. Here it says, "Josh Lyman is quaking in his boots."
3: Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, Sam Robards is in this episode playing the New York Times reporter.
2: You have a favorite parking garage for this sort of thing? Come on in, Greg.
3: Uh, Greg Brock and of course uh, Greg Brock like all of the characters I created is named after a real friend of mine Greg Brock and so, uh, and Sam was just so wonderful in it he's just a really wonderful and fluid actor and Allison loved working with him in second one which I kind of knew she would and that was a that was one of those great things where you you bring in a guest actor and it's and it's as if he'd been there and been working with Allison for years it was just great he's just completely charming and charismatic and you know he auditioned for that part and he had flown from Sweden that day and stumbled off an airplane and so he gave what was probably his uh, shakiest audition, but he'd been a longtime friend of mine, and I knew his work, and I knew he was absolutely great, as did everyone else in the room. And so, you know, he there was no question about who was going to get that part. <laughs> Were you often in auditions? Yeah, if I wrote the episode, I would sit in auditions for any episode that I wrote and consider everybody. So how did it feel having written your first uh, solo script
0: for The West Wing? Did it make you feel like... Maybe you did want to write more for future seasons?
3: Yeah, it did. I mean, I, I really, you know, I was a wounded warrior who healed. And uh, I, could, I discovered I could walk again. And yeah, it really did. Working with the actors again was just magical. And, you know, there's a very important element of this episode that was created by the genius Richard Schiff. Richard said to me, after he'd read the script... Um, we did the read-through. Richard said to me, um, so Toby knows. And I, thought, and I said, um, well, no. He doesn't, no one knows. It's, she's the only one who knows. It's her secret. Only she knows. And he said, no, 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 no. To- Toby knows. <laughs> mm, okay. So, Leslie Lee Lick- we we talk about this. Le- Leslie directs it. So basically, as she and I talked about it, we realized we don't have to change a word. <laughs> we can, we're going to shoot amazing. this thing, and we can decide in editing whether toby knows we can take out that look in the oval office we can just clip it don't have to see it you know we can do this and so if you ever look at it again and think about it as the when the when it's written the writer does not think toby knows (laughs) and then the actor thinks toby does know and so toby plays it as toby knows all the way through and it's every bit of toby knowing is in the silence it's in the silence it's in his eyes there's only one moment where he does something in dialogue that's based on it she okay well you know she got blindsided by this hoins thing on live tv and that got to her yeah it did. and watch the way toby says yeah it did now he could have just said yeah it did just very matter-of-factly like you know Yes, the ankle is broken. Just really, you know, diagnostically, yeah, it did. But you watch the way he does that, and he puts something in that line mm-hmm. that is knowing, and it just makes you feel there's more in his head. And I'm watching, I'm watching this happen on the set, and I and I watch him do that, and that's the moment where I decide, yeah, Toby knows because. That's just a beautiful way to deliver that line, you know? <laughs> and and my alternative at that point would be to say to Richard, you know, do you want to now give us one straight where, like, he just doesn't know? You know, once I saw Richard really taking over with this, I knew before we got to the editing room, oh, I really do want to see that moment in Richard's eyes. I really do want to see this. And so at a certain point, I stopped caring about are we tipping this and decided I care much more about Toby and CJ's relationship and Toby as a support system for her. And I want all of that. And that was all written silently by Richard Schiff. It's amazing. I love that uh,
0: the aftereffect too, of Toby's um, little spin on that line of, of um, yeah, that got to her because then we get to even see a little bit of a reaction from John Spencer where he's picked up on that from Toby and suddenly he's got some glint of knowing in his eyes too, that there's more to this story at least than what there seems to be on the surface.
3: Yeah. And, you know, one of the other real joys of the episode for me is Jesse Bradford uh, doing Ryan Pierce, who I had not worked with before. And I... I see him, and if you look at the episode again, just watch him, the way I was writing him in that episode is, he is Josh Lyman, this is what Josh Lyman was when he was huh. Ryan's age. That's what. That's all you're seeing, yeah. you're watching Josh Lyman see himself in the mirror when he's that age.
0: That's good, okay, um, wave your finger in my face, look like you're gonna hit me. You're out of your mind? That's good, that's great. Uh, show Congressman Finn you're ready to kill to save his base is going to love you for this.
3: <laughs> One thing that I used to want to see happen in my first two years there that didn't happen as much as I wanted it to happen is I wanted to see how wrong people could be. I wanted to see our people and I wanted to see them get outsmarted and how they would deal with getting outsmarted and when you'd realize that you were outsmarted. And here's the most difficult thing in politics and in government is getting outsmarted by somebody and then realizing that they are Right, and the ego of men in those situations <laughs> makes it very difficult for us to put it mildly to get to that space, and so we have that with Jesse Bradford, with you know, with Ryan Pierce when he does that thing, that crazy thing, of bringing Congressman Chris Finn into the room, and he does it so that Josh can get the credit of saving the congressman's base, and he says to him, "Look." You are now going to get credit for something that the commission was going to do anyway. And that is a brilliant principle in politics and government. And believe me, I was in that position more than once (laughs) where I was positioning my team to take credit with certain political players for getting something for them. That they were going to get anyway, no matter what they were going to get it anyway, but we got the credit and then they owed us. Right. It's a very important concept. And so I loved that he both figured that out, did it. And Josh has to stand there and realize, oh, my God this horrible little creature who I hate <laughs> is right.
1: Yes, and he realizes it as he's being observed by
3: them. So yes, yeah, through the glass. The yeah, gym. through the glass is so fantastic. Yeah. And that's just a great thing. And, and the other thing I loved about that was getting Donna to the table. You know, in government, there's all sorts of levels of the game. You know, there's the question of, were you in the room? There's another level of this, and that is, were you at the table? Donna had never been at the table. She had gotten occasionally near the room, in the room. She'd never been at the table. You'll notice, I tried to give that some meaning earlier in the episode because because little Ryan tried to sit at the table right at the beginning of the first meeting. And the very first words Josh speaks when he walks into that room (laughs) is to Donna saying, Get him out of that chair. Yeah. Get him away from the table because for Josh and for all of us in that cult. And it's a huge deal when you get to sit at the table. And Josh couldn't stand the sight of that kid sitting at the table. Well, Lawrence, thanks so much for letting
0: us sit at the table with you for this. This was awesome. We always appreciate having you on as a guest.
3: Thank you very much. And thank you for making me watch this show again, because I just like it so much better. I like it so much better when I watch it now.
1: That wraps it up for another episode of the West Wing Weekly. We're glad you joined us. The West Wing Weekly remains, as always, a proud member of Radiotopia, which is a collection of the finest cutting-edge podcasts on the planet. You can find out more about them at radiotopia.fm. Shout-out and thanks to Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller, and Ryan Pierce, as played by Nick Song, our researcher, and also, you can follow us on Instagram, on Twitter. You can sign up for our newsletter, which we can't afford to send out. <laughs> and if you buy a couple more pieces of merchandise at westmainweeklycom slash merch, maybe we'll eventually send you a newsletter.
0: I did remember one thing I, I thought of during uh-huh. this episode, which is that I really find some separation between Will and Josh Molina. Like sometimes when I'm watching the episode, I forget that I do a podcast with that guy on the screen. The way you speak in real life sometimes <laughs> reminds me of a whole lot of Jeremy Goodwin and, and Will Bailey. But then there are other times, like in this episode, where I thought my experience of you and my understanding of you, and I don't know, it just is uh, completely different from what I'm seeing on screen.
1: That delights me to hear. I, I feel like that proves it. I am acting. You were. You definitely are. <laughs> I know. I thought I was, but sometimes like, was I? <laughs> that makes me feel good. You were. I'll take it.
0: Okay.
3: Okay. What's next?
0: Before we let you go, we want to tell you about a new series from one of our fellow Radiotopia shows, the award-winning Kitchen Sisters. It's called The Keepers, stories of
1: activist archivists, rogue librarians, curators, collectors, historians,
0: protectors of the free flow of information and ideas. Here's a little clip from one of the episodes from The Kitchen Sisters.
2: Every art form has their standards that they've placed in the canon. Mathematics, science, everybody has their greats. And somebody placed them
1: there. People in visual art world say, hey, okay, this is what's going in the
2: Louvre. This is it. And I think hip hop needs the same thing. This is the archive. <laughs>
1: Take a listen to The Keepers on The Kitchen Sisters Present. It's available on your favorite podcast app and also at kitchensisters.org. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.